every year we try to introduce something new. And this, when we started four years ago, immersive sound was a hot topic, and it was an easy one. Um, and we had founding sponsors, something to talk about. Um, we added the production sound pavilion last year. Um, we've added the virtual reality room last year. This year, we wanted to bring the music people in um, because it had largely been, we looked back and we said it's largely a, an effects show, uh, largely in post-production, and a lot of sound effects come through these buildings. Um, but we did, and so you're looking at Mix Magazine right now, and I was trying to figure out how do we blend these two worlds. Well, it's on the cover of Mix right now. Um, two years ago, I was standing in this spot with Mark Mangini, um, who later won the Oscar for Mad Max. Mark, if you're in the house, Jamie, fantastic. Um, but in, um, in, uh, in two minutes before the event, he says, Tom, you've really got to talk to this guy, Tom Hulkenborg. Um, he just had the experience of his time working on Black Mass and, um, and Mad Max Fury Road. And he talked about the blend of music and effects, which has been near and dear to Mark's heart since I first met him, certainly probably since his Hanna-Barbera days. Um, and I started to think out loud, well, who, could I, who, who should we get to introduce the idea of uh, sound design and effects through the, music, through the composer's point of view? Um, in parallel with that, we developed the Composer's Lounge today. And the Composer's Lounge will be over in the Anthony Quinn Theater, run by Stephen Saltzman, and he's helped me out tremendously, so I want to thank Stephen. Um, and you'll be going on throughout the day, you'll see a lot of programming specifically for composers, music editors, and that community. But Tom stood out special um, because when um, I first heard about him, I was the editor of Remix magazine as well, under Mix, and we had this cover back in the mid-2000s for Junkie XL, and he looks the same today. <laughs> um, but we didn't know. This guy, this was a guy who was in electronic music before anybody in America knew what EDM was or anything. You know, we didn't even know. He's, when he came to America in the early 2000s, he had number one hits in 24 countries, and he's working as an apprentice because he wanted to be a composer. Um, he wanted to work with picture, something uh, that has been with him since probably piano lessons back in his native Holland. Um, so this is a man who's played the crowds of 100,000 and has... Uh, has uh, worked with, you know, plugged in cables for Harry Gregson Williams and, and Hans Zimmer. And that's how he started out. He came in and, you know, tw 24 number ones and starting out at the bottom, just like, just like you're supposed to. Um, you can read about him in Mix. I'm not going to go on and on about that. But I, I really I think it's a special opportunity that we have in front of us today to give that perspective that brings us into the current age with music and effects. So please welcome Tom Holkenborg, also known as Junkie XL. Thank you, guys. Um, so bear with me here. Uh, I did play for hundreds of thousands of people. Actually, my biggest show was a million and a half uh, gay parade in Italy, uh, 2001. Uh, and I would do that without any nerves. But speaking for a crowd like this, I usually don't do. So I'm a little nervous here. But um, bear with me. Um, so I think what many people don't know when I do uh, interviews is that it's always like related to music and what I've done in music and what my musical upbringing was and everything. But what never really gets um, discussed uh, is that actually I had uh, a technical background first before I had I actually broke through as a, as, a, as an artist. Uh, so my claim to fame was when I was 14, I think, and I worked at a local radio station on the countryside in Holland, and I was working as the engineer for the 
political program between 12 and 1 on Saturday with an average of 26 listeners. Um, so that was my claim to fame, I guess. Um, and I, I got fascinated by sound and music from very early on. I was born in 67, um, so I'm turning 50 this year. And uh, when I turned seven, uh, which was 1974, my nephew, who was 18 years old, and he was a super cool dude, and I was just like a seven-year-old nerd, um, and he gave me Dark Side of the Moon, Pink Floyd. And I remember playing that record from beginning to end, and it would spark so much fantasy and thinking about stories and, and the sounds that they use on the album. I remember taking that record to school on, um, I think it was the day before the Christmas break or the holiday break, and we were all allowed to bring records to school and just play them. And kids would play, you know, Christmas songs, or they would play like something from a musical. And there I came and I played On the Run by Pink Floyd. Kids started like screaming and like crying in the room. And my, my teacher called my parents to ask uh, what the hell was wrong with your kids, you know, to bring this to school. Um, I was always drawn to the darker side of, uh, of sound and never to the lighter side, even though I was a, um, a bright and jolly, jolly kid, but the darker side has always drawn me in. Um, therefore, the political program as a 14-year-old. Um, so by the time I was 15, uh, I started working at, the, at a studio as an as a assistant engineer, and pretty soon I became an engineer. And then by the time I was 17, 18, I was able to make a pretty good sound with what I wanted to achieve. And I also noticed that uh, working in the studio is actually my extra instrument. And uh, I was able to do stuff with just simple EQ and compression. And I mean, the, the tools that we had back there in the studio was extremely limited. Um, but we were able, I was able to make something that felt really unique and mine. And um, bands in the neighborhood liked that. And then, you know, they asked me to produce a record and I got better at it. And I learned more about microphones and guitar amps and drum kits and everything. Um, and then, um, then I started playing in bands in the in the mid '80s and producing bands that I played in, and then I had my first international record contract in '86, and that's when I started touring around the world. And then later that became uh, Junkie XL, and um, like what was just mentioned in 2002, I had a number one hit with a remix of Elvis. And when that track dropped number one in 24 countries, I was Harry Gregson Williams' assistant chopping samples in the basement because I wanted to become a film composer without getting paid. Um, and I'm still happy that I, I do this. Uh, I feel uh, truly honored and humbled that I'm able to speak to you guys. This is like an amazing, wonderful community. And um, I'm really happy to be part of it with one leg. On one leg, I'm in the composer's world, and on one leg, I'm in the in the tech world and, and engineering world. Um, now, in the mid-'80s, I also worked in a music store. Um, and this was around the time period, 1983, 84, when um, Pro24 came out, which is the very, very first sequence program when the Logic original uh, designer and the Cubase original designer were still buddies and pals and thought they could fix this together. Um, but then they pretty soon split up and did their, their own uh, software program. This was done on an Atari with MIDI built-in, and this is the same time period that uh, synthesizers and samplers became affordable to normal souls like us, I guess. I mean, they were still expensive, but before that, you're talking about hundred, two hundred thousand dollars for a computer system. Now we're talking about five to ten thousand um, dollars. 
And um, this was funny because this was still in that small countryside town where nobody lived. And, and this, this guy, this owner of the shop said, but there's no nobody will buy this stuff this is like pointless and i said no no just give me give me like a couple of months you know let's buy a couple of samplers and synthesizers and get this computer let me get to know this and i'm going to start doing demos and um fast forward a year later like we were the, um, the best selling store in holland uh for selling all this stuff and people would come from the big cities to this small countryside town to get a demo like how this stuff worked and we sold uh, uh, a lot of it um, at that time, I also figured out that um, growing up as a traditional musician, guitar, bass, drums, piano, um, and knowing these new capacities that you could do with computers and with uh, samplers and with synthesizers, I knew that was going to be the basis for what I wanted to do the, the rest of my life. And sound design became really quickly a part of that because now you could sample your guitars, your drums, so you could do really weird stuff with it. And in, in the beginning, it was all like super simple. You can reverse it and do some EQ on it. But pretty soon, um, all these effect processors came out. And you could really take it to town. So in my first Junkie XL record, starting from 95, 96, um, sound design became very important in, um, in that um, way of creating music. And especially in the electronic music scene, um, people have gotten really creative in creating really unique sounds with a uh, beat underneath it. And the trippier the sound, the better it is. And especially back in the days, you know, this is all changed right now, but in 95, 96, you couldn't go to a place as big like this and everybody was doing ecstasy. And uh, when you were, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just true. And so the trippier the sounds, the trippier the experience was when you, when you would listen to music. And it was really like Woodstock, you know, it was everybody you know together it was a really good vibe uh, this feeling of love and the dj was playing it was not about the dj you would never see the dj and it would always be these strobes and it was a wonderful time period for uh, music development and for experience um and like i said sound design was a really big part of that um another thing that happens in the electronic music scene late 80s early into the 90s is that um, going to a traditional studio to have music finished uh, kind of disappeared. Like everybody started doing it on their own. They they started buying the early Pro Tools sets, uh, Cubase with uh, really good sound cards, buying extra plugins. Um, and many people got really experienced at making music, doing sound design, creating a track and finish it themselves, master it themselves, and then uh, release it through their own channels. There's no... Uh, industry like the electronic dance industry um, in the late 80s, 90s, going into the 2000s, that was completely self-fulfilling. Like we didn't need big record companies to get our word across and organize these really big parties. It was a truly eye-opening, a revolutionary uh, time period for music. So for me coming out of that uh, scene and decided to go to um, uh, Hollywood and to try to become a, a film composer, um, was in the electronic scene basically seen as a sellout. Like in, in the half 90s, um, everybody was so true to their own um, roots that you, know, you needed to be true to your music and true to yourself. And um, everything, every link that was made with a big corporation was, um, um, was the devil, was a pact made with the devil. So when I started making music for commercials, video games and trailers and a few one-offs for movies in the half 90s, 
I was seen as like a sellout and a complete idiot. Um, 12 years later, these same people all lined up in LA for a job. Uh, but unfortunately, they didn't see it coming. Um, and I saw in the mid 90s that music for commercials and video games and movies would be for me the new radio for electronic music. There would not be another way to reach an audience like that. Now, when I came to LA, um, I didn't intend to be um, the electronic guy that's now going to do electronic scores for film for films. I really wanted to become a real film composer in in the sense that you know the classic ones are. Um, and the bar was pretty high. I know that, but you know, there's this Dutch expression. Uh, I don't know if it makes sense in English, but if you never shoot, you will, per definition, miss. Um, so. It's, um, it, it was one of those, and it, I knew it was gonna take a lot of work. So in the late 90s, I started studying in my uh, nighttime university books on music theory, even though I had a classical upbringing um, with my parents, but I mean, it wasn't as extensive as you know proper music university. Um, and I started studying for 10 years, 12 years in the, in the night hours when I was on tour still. And I started assisting composers, and I saw what they did and what they, especially what they didn't do. And this was a very interesting um, learning curve for me. So all the all the composers that I assisted, and all the movies that I worked on with other composers, and I did really little things here. There was no or little interest on their side for the mixing process or for the sound design, and it baffled me. It always baffled me. It's like how is that possible? Because at a certain point. You know, it was just mentioned, you know, this wonderful desk up there. At a certain point in time, the music is going to be pulled up on the faders. The sound effects are going to be pulled up on those faders. And they need to work together. They need to be a coherent um, mix between everything. And I sometimes feel really bad for the dubbing mixes with the amount of, well, let's just call it shit that they need to deal with. Because they pull all these faders up and it's like, how is this ever going to work together? And then obviously you need you know, a very strong opinion from a strong director that will say this is going to happen and that's going to happen and guide the dubbing mixers to get through the process, which is not always easy. So I thought if I ever were to be in a position where I actually become a composer for a film, wouldn't it be nice to reach out to the sound design department and talk about this and see if there's something that we can do? Or for that same matter, I've been part of many dubbing mixing sessions where you know, you turn your head around and you don't try to fight for your music, but you actually look at the movie and you decide, is this music actually really needed here? Or are these sound effects actually really needed here? And if you have a really solid dialogue with the sound design department and with the dubbing mix department and with the director, and you can really have an open discussion without fighting for your little island that is called music or your island that is called sound effects, and when all egos are taken out of the equation, then you can create a process where you really start talking about what is good for the film. And um, the two movies that um, were just mentioned that I worked with, Mark Mangini, were two excellent examples, um, especially Mad Max. I mean, it took 18 months to make the music for that thing, um, and roughly another 18 months for the sound effects. So we want to avoid any of that. So there were so many occasions where we could talk about that, especially because all of us were in Sydney for like 14 weeks, and we had breakfast together, and then we had lunch together, and then we had dinner together. And lunch and dinner was usually 
two times Italian, you know, like in a row, and then usually wine at lunch and wine at dinner. So this opened up like really interesting conversations. And then after, and obviously after wine with dinner, there was always the bar that you would go to. So that's where conversations really got interesting. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's very important. And for me, um, a couple of examples how I um, used that was um, the first movie I did, 300 Rise of an Empire. There's this massive scene, a battle scene that takes place at sea. And the sound effects were really far developed. And there was this rhythm in wave that was so awesome. And it was constantly the same. And so I asked the sound design uh, department, uh, I think it was Scott Hacker on that, on that one, um, that I worked with on a couple of other DC uh, superhero movies. And uh, I said to him, give me a bounce of that wave. And he gave me that wave. And then um, I'm going to get a little technical here, but I use a couple of programs that are really good in uh, creating and sampling FFT envelopes. Uh, one of them is MetaSynth, and the other one is Kima of Symbolic Sound Systems. Um, and what I did is I took the FFT anal analysis of these waves, and for people that don't know what that is, I basically sampled the sound for performance in level, but also performance in frequencies when they, when they happen. And then it creates a picture, it creates an image, it creates a file, and that you can apply to anything else. So I took the sound of the waves, took a picture of it, and then I applied it to drums and I applied it to brass. Uh, so now we have drums and brass that still sound like drum and brass, but they have the performance of the waves. So what's added to it is the white noise of the waves crashing, but also the, the rhythm of the waves and also the frequency response of the waves. So I created a whole piece of music of 10 minutes based on that sound. And now we laid it up to picture and it's completely in sync with the waves. And it completely takes you through that whole scene like so naturally. Um, so when you start to do things like that, it sparks the imagination with other departments in the film. So for instance, David Brenner, who was the picture editor, um, he saw that the, the sound and music department were working together to create something that was in sync. And now he was looking at the picture and he was saying, but wait a minute, the sales of these 30 ships come down in the wrong rhythm because you guys have set up something so strong with the sound design and with the waves. So he decided to go back to the picture department and to the uh, digital effects department to redraw the sails coming down on a different rhythm so now it matched up with the sound of the waves and with the music. Now these are very powerful ex examples how you can make stuff better. But this only works if you work together as a team and you could let that, you know, that ego go and, and just really work together. It's like, what is gonna make this film really good? Now with Mad Max, we had so many examples of this where um, we would basically just hang out in the dubbing room and then we would play sections of the film and then Mark and I would discuss this, like, really, do we need music here or do we need sound effects here? And Mad Max became really good, I think, in the end results, not only because um, Mark and I had that discussion, but we had a director that had such an incredible vision how he wanted to take this movie to the next level. And I, I mean, isn't it remarkable that it takes like a 76-year-old guy from Sydney to make the most exciting action movie in the last 10 years with all these young directors and, and studio ads. I mean, think about it. It's, it's, it's remarkable. And um, working with him was like such a joy. And he's also the one that um, he would push us further and further and further 
uh, out of our comfort zone into an uncomfortable zone. And he would see how you would perform in your uncomfortable zone. And then that zone became comfortable. And then he would push again. And he would push again. And he was able to get the most amount quality out of everybody working on that film. All the, the, the dubbing engineers, the music editor, uh, the special effects, uh, the, the sound effects, Mark Mangini and the music, uh, me. Um, and this resulted in a constant handoff between... Uh, sound effects into music, back into sound effects, back into music. And Mark and I discussed a lot, like, so what do you think is your department and what do you think is my department? And we would discuss it and then we would compare options. So I would do a lot of sound design for a certain scene and then we would check if it was too much or not too much. And we would constantly hand it off to one another. So for a viewer to watch this film, um, it's going to be nearly impossible to tell where my work stopped, where Mark's began, or vice versa. Um, on Black Mass, we had a wonderful collaboration where um, Mark was uh, creating really beautiful ambiences for the sound of the harbor or the sound of Southie, where this whole movie took place. And I gave him all the cues that I had, and not only that, I gave him all the sound design files that I created for these type of cues and also give that to him. And then vice versa, he would then give me back the stuff that he created. But the end result was that all the environments that he created somewhat had a really strong relationship with the key of where I was writing the cue in. Um, and this way we were able to create a really easy match. And when those faders are pulled up on that beautiful desk uh, over there, it kind of is in harmony, like right from the start, instead of a fight, and then you have to find the, the coloration uh, between the two. Um, and I think this is going uh, to a whole new level. I mean, I watch, I take joy in watching a lot of different series on Hulu, Netflix. I actually watched last night in one go the whole season of The Handmaid's Tale. Um, and I thought, oh, let's check this out. And uh, I remember playing episode one at seven o'clock and it was 2.45 a.m. this morning when I was done with the season. Um, <laughs> and, so, and then I was like, shit, I gotta go to bed. I got this thing tomorrow morning in Culver City. Um, but um, one of the things that struck me also in that, in that uh, TV show, especially the, because it's so, it's so geared to, towards binge watching, you know. It's it, whereas the old TV shows, I actually rewatched uh, 24, all nine seasons uh, in a row. Uh, I, you have to understand, I'm an insomniac, so I gotta kill my time at night. And uh, usually, binge watching is uh, a way to go. Um, but you could see, you know, with 24, it's re the format really is. Uh, TV from like 15 years ago and it has all these mini cliffhangers going to the commercial break and then at the end a major cliffhanger and then you have to damn I gotta wait for another week to see how this thing is going to continue whereas the other TV shows like The Handmaid's Tale is actually built to watch like in one go it has a really nice you know eight hour movie format you know with a really nice arc and it it, it, it builds suspension part of this primarily also is um, the the mix between sound design and music and the way that it's mixed co compared to uh, to the dialogue. It's, I think it's a really interesting approach. 
And um, for instance, with this series, I can't tell where the composer stopped or where the sound designer starts. I have no idea. Whether this composer is very creative and he made a lot of these sounds himself, whether that came from the sound department. Maybe there are people here that know actually what the story is, but I, I don't. But I, it doesn't matter. It, it just it, What it does for me is that it creates this really nice uh, flow uh, that I can actually watch and that I actually really enjoy. Um, and I find that fascinating in the in the the time that we live right now where uh, sound design is considered music, music is considered sound design. And um, this is this is funny, by the way. Uh, this is to all dread of uh, these traditional uh, film score, uh, scoring blocks that are out there in the world that still feel that uh, the perfect film score is an orchestra and that's it. And, um, and I hold the number one position as Mad Max is the worst film score written in history. So I'm actually very proud of that. Um, but these people don't get it, what, what the future is. And we always go through waves. A perfect example where 100% classic orchestra goes hand in hand with sound design, where you also don't really feel where it stops or where it ends, is the first Alien movie. Um, where the very eerie sounds of Jerry Goldsmith, I think, um, and Ridley Scott, and then the sound of that spaceship, and the sound of that spaceship is the score, and then sometimes the score is the, the, the sound effects, and it's so well done. So that's an example of where uh, classic, classical orchestra and sound design perfectly work uh, uh, hands on hands. There's also a lot of movies where I feel the distance between the worlds is so big that it almost becomes like, um, uh, a, a bridge that cannot be crossed, where the sound design is so futuristic and so modern and so fresh. And then on the other side, there's this really traditional orchestra doing what traditional film music needs to do. And there's a massive gap between the two that does not get bridged. And for me, sometimes that feels uh, uncomfortable to see it because I feel two different worlds and they're not somehow uh, connected. But I feel we're, we're living in a very interesting time where everybody is completely open-minded to what uh, the soundtrack for uh, a film can be. And when I say soundtrack, I mean the mix of the film, the sound effects, the dialogue, the music, everything combined together. We call that the soundtrack. And I think we're very much heading into very exciting times and I'm very happy to be a part of that and work with this wonderful community to see if we can make even more groundbreaking new films and soundtracks. Thank you.